0: Welcome to Tax Avoidance is Legal on TalkZone.com. The show that's here to make the topic of taxes fun and interesting while providing great advice for individuals and small business owners on how to mitigate their tax liabilities. Now, here are your hosts, Craig and Belsis Smalley.
1: Good afternoon, listeners, and thank you for joining us on Tax Avoidance is Legal. I'm your host Belsis Smalley,
2: and I am your host Craig Smalley.
1: Uh, This is about week 18 of our show, and we're really excited to be live on the air with everyone. Uh, When we started this a few months back, uh, we decided to challenge ourselves by making the topic of taxes fun and interesting. Uh, So don't turn the channel just yet.
2: Yeah, so last week we had a little bit of fun poking uh, fun at the tax code. So, this week we're going to have uh we're going to have some more fun. So, it's really funny, you know, I've been in practice for 22 years and there's some really really weird things about the tax, tax code and minutes. a lot of people will ask me, "Why is the tax code like that?" So, that's what this uh that That's what this is all about. This is why is the tax code like that? So as Belsus mentioned, we are live on the air and happy to take calls. So the call-in number is one eight 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 go for it or one 463 6748 Now, we also realize that we're dealing with confidential issues. So we have a email address that you can send your email questions to. And we get a lot of those. So our email is... Info at tax avoidances legalcom And before
1: we move forward, folks, I just want to stress that the advice given on tax avoidances is legal is general in nature. Craig W. Smalley, E.A. and C.W.S. EAPA, L.L.P., and their associated entities cannot be held responsible for the advice given on this radio show. You should always consult your tax and or legal advisor.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: As Craig mentioned, we can be found online uh, at Tax is legal.com and uh, you can email your questions to info at com. The show is sponsored by CWSEAPA and we are a nationally recognized brand of accounting and financial services. And um, as Craig mentioned, uh, last week we talked about a lot of fun stuff, and uh, uh, I think we got a, uh, a lot of pretty cool questions, uh, hopefully we got everybody's questions answered. Um, Craig, do you wanna talk about uh what we're gonna be discussing this week?
2: Yeah, so I, I had a lot of fun last week and that was, that was kind of by design, I guess. So, um, you know, I decided that we'd have some fun this week. So there are a lot of, the, a lot of these really funny nuances with the, uh, tax code and I thought that we could have some fun pointing them out and asking the question, why is the tax code like that? Because there's a reason for all of that. So anyway, um, You know, people hire people like me to find a way around the tax code. So how laws work are laws are made and then people find ways around them. Once you found a way around them, you tell your other practitioners about the way around them. And then another law is made that stops you from going around it and you just continue going around it. So that's why everything is so complex.
1: So basically what you're saying is that you are really the reason behind why. The tax code is so complex.
2: I should have known it was you, you were the. Culprit. Well, well, no, it's not me, actually. I mean, there's there's people a lot smarter than me doing this, but um, I, we're not exactly helping matters.
1: No, I guess not. But it does make things fun and interesting for for folks like us who like to uh, find those ways around the laws
2: exactly yeah exactly so you know but you know that's what we do for a living that's what we're paid for we're we're here to to find legal ways around things so anyway that's that's basically what that boils down to
1: well i do have quite a few you know questions that hopefully kind of uh uh fall into this uh under the umbrella of why the tax code is the way it is um one of the things i've always wondered and i know that a lot of folks out there probably feel the same is How come when you're talking about deductions, why are meals and entertainment only 50% deductible?
2: Very, very simply, very simply this. This is um uh, very simply. There used to be something back in the 80s before the the big 1986 tax code change called the three martini lunch. So basically, back then it was fashionable to go to lunch with somebody and buy three martinis or whatever, and you know buy these big lavish meals and you know go on these big entertainment things with clients and everything. And, and people were writing those off a lot, and they were started writing off their family dinners and this, that, and the others. So the IRS was like, hey, wait a minute. Now you've got to have a lot of substantiation for that. And not only that, we're going to make it 50% deductible. So that's basically why that is the way it is.
1: So basically uh, folks were kind of abusing the, the whole
2: yeah, deduction. Yeah, for the most part, you know.
1: Uh, it's always a few people that ruin it for the rest of us.
2: Well, no, know, in, in this case, it was everybody. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it wasn't a few people. It was everybody.
1: I know. I can't blame folks. I mean, uh, so, you know, folks often want to try to get away with what they can get away with. Um, isn't there a special provision when it comes to cars?
2: Yes. Yeah. Now, this is a perfect example of how we found a way around something. So, again, back in 1986 the tax code was changed dramatically from what it was in previous years. So what they did at that time was, before then, you could buy a Porsche, you could buy a Mercedes-Benz, you could buy whatever it was, and you could write that thing off 100%. Well, the IRS instituted something called a luxury tax. and Basically, what that means is you can write your car off, but only X amount per year can you depreciate it by. So you can only depreciate it by three thousand sixty dollars in the first year, and in the second year. But you'll never fully depreciate it out. Now, before a couple of years ago, if you that was only on cars that would, had a gross vehicle weight of less than twenty five thousand pounds. Bellesus, and guess what happened?
1: What happened?
2: Well, if you remember correctly, there was a big SUV craze about 10 years ago where everybody Mm -hmm. was going out and buying SUVs. And guess what? Those SUVs, those SUVs were over 2,500 pounds, or I'm sorry, 25,000 pounds. Perfect Mm. example was there was a big thing about 10 years ago called the Hummer tax deduction. Remember all the Hummers you saw on the road back then? Yeah, that that was a craze for a bit. The reason for that was because they didn't fall into the luxury tax. Because back in 1986, a vehicle over 25,000 pounds was farm equipment. It was a special truck. It was something like that. It certainly wasn't an, an everyday car that you could drive. So, you know, Detroit decided to make bigger cars. We decided to buy them. And that was a way around it. So guess what the IRS did?
1: It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like that was a way the, uh, professionals are trying to get our, you know,
2: around yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, 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 but the IRS, they put in a, a stipulation and now it's, um, vehicles over 25,000 pounds. You can deduct a little bit more f- from them than you can ordinary cars, but now the number is 50,000 pounds. So they brought that up to 50,000 pounds now. So that's, so that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, once the IRS catches on, then they do something to try to kind of correct it or make it a little tougher on everyone else. To
2: Yeah, it's usually, know, well, no, in this case, it was Congress that caught on. So oh, Congress changed that.
1: I see. Wow. Wonderful. Well, I have a question for you. Why does the burden of proof fall on the taxpayer uh, in an
2: audit? Well... Basically so we we live in this you know society where you're innocent until proven guilty but that's not true in an IRS audit in an IRS audit you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent which is basically the way it goes so if you have any deductions or income you've got to prove all of that so the burden of proof falls on you because you're the one that reported it and signed things under the penalty of perjury but there's an article, like like I've said many, many, many times. I write a column for Accounting Web, and um, and it's called Tax Court Corner. And I just uh, wrote a really good article. I don't know when they're going to publish it, but I wrote an article on something called the Cohen Rule. Right. So the Cohen Rule is really, really, really important. In the Cohen rule, you can what the task court basically said was there was this guy, and he was a playwright, and he had expenses on on his on being a playwright. He was traveling from town to town, and this was back in 1935. So he's traveling from town to town, and when he was in the different towns, he was taking different entertainment people out to dinner and things like that, but. He didn't keep any substantiation. Well, the tax court said, hey, listen, he had to have something, something. He spent something on these trips. He spent something on this side or the other. And they gave him the benefit of the doubt and they allowed him to deduct X amount of um these expenses because uh he – um, you know he obviously spent it, so that spawned the Cohen Cohen rule. So we have the Cohen rule. So if you're lacking some some substantiation, you can always go in and say, well, obviously I had to spend something, and use the Cohen rule. And that's something that I've used a couple of times, but it's something that's very very complex. It's something that if you don't deal with every day, you don't want to go in and say, hey, I use the Cohen rule because you've got to back that up, but. It's something that um, you know. That's a way around uh, substantiation.
1: Okay, so just to make it clear, can or, or you can or you can't deduct things without substantiation.
2: You can deduct some things without substantiation, but you should always have the substantiation. The Cohen rule should only come in as an emergency. It's not. It shouldn't be your go-to.
1: Okay, if well. that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, hopefully it makes sense to everyone out there. Um, we have a lot of questions that are uh, coming up. I think maybe we'll take a quick little break before we uh, we approach all those questions. I want to remind everyone that uh, we are live on the air, and they can call in with their questions, One eight 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 go for it or one eight 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 four six three six seven four eight. 463 6748 You can also email your questions to info at com. Uh, On the other side of the break, uh, Craig will discuss some more reasons uh, why the tax code is so complex.
3: At Tax Crisis Center, LLC, we solve tax problems for a living. If you have a tax problem with the IRS, you've probably been inundated with postcards and letters from different tax resolution companies all over the country. Tax Crisis Center, LLC, is the country's premier tax resolution company. Unlike other tax resolution companies that will take your money and do nothing for you, once we are retained, we go to work. We get results for our clients and will handle your IRS problem professionally and expeditiously. Don't let the IRS push you around anymore. Give us a call at 1-855-IRS-2911. Email us at help at taxcrisiscenter.com or visit us on the web at www.taxcrisiscenter.com and let your voice be heard.
0: CWS EAPA is a financial services company specializing in taxation and tax-related issues. Tax planning is a year-round activity. The biggest mistake that people make is thinking about taxes during tax time. When you have a complex tax situation, you need to plan for taxes on a year-round basis. Our specialty is mitigating our clients' tax obligations through careful tax planning. Tax avoidance is legal. Call us today at one 1- 1 844 CWSEAPA or 1 844 297 3272. You can visit us on the web at CWSEAPA.com or email us at info at CWSEAPA.com. Put us to work for you today. Welcome back to Tax Avoidance Is Legal on TalkZone. Here is Craig and Belsis Smalley.
1: Welcome back to Tax Avoidance Is Legal. Thanks for joining us back after our break. Uh, we've been discussing why the uh, basically why the tax code is so uh, complex, why it is the way it is, and uh, we've had quite a few questions uh, that Craig has started answering. Most of them have been just things that I think a lot of folks. Always have swimming around in their in their mind, and maybe have never had a chance to kind of address it with somebody like Craig, who who's a tax expert. And so, um, I wanted to make sure that I kind of uh, bring in the uh, outside point of view um, into this discussion. Um, but Craig, I do have some more questions. Um, That have come in, Uh, and we realize that a lot of you guys are at work, so if you have any questions and are not able to give us a call, you can email your questions to info at com, and we will try our very best to get them all answered on the air. If we don't get to your questions while we are on the air, we will definitely still email you back and respond to your question. And we have a question from Mike in Miami. He wants to know um, why there is an internal revenue service. (laughs)
2: That's a broad question. well, no, it's not a funny question. I mean, everybody wants to get rid of the IRS. I mean, you know, but you need to have somebody collect the tax money. That's the reason for the Internal Revenue Service. That's their only function is to administer the tax code and collect tax money. That's so you have to have some organization do that. So, you know, it's funny. I hear a lot of times and, and, you know, it's, it's always popular during um, you know, it's always popular during uh election time that um you know everybody wants to abolish the IRS. But you know, it's one of those things. It's if you don't have the IRS, you'll have some other government administration that you know that's administering the tax code and um, you know, collecting taxes. So anyway, that's basically why you have the IRS.
1: That one of the questions that I have is something that I get asked all the time. Uh, what is depreciation and can you explain that?
2: Yeah, well depreciation is kind of complicated. It's, it's something that, you know, um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, is just, you know, I'll just give you the definition of depreciation. Depreciation is basically the recovery of a fixed asset over a period of time. So if you buy something that's over $2,500, um, in the tax code today, so that's a computer, or, you know, a desk or, you know, whatever it is, you have to recover it over a period of time. You can't directly write it off. So, um but there's a lot of nuances with depreciation so it can get very very complicated.
1: And are there you know what are some of the special provisions uh, with regards to depreciation?
2: If you don't well, mind. one of them, one of them, and one of them is going away at the end of this year. And, um, they've been, uh, it goes away at the end of every year, but they renew it. But this is something they've already said that they want to go away for a long time, which is, um, bonus depreciation. So if you buy something and it's brand new and the use commences with you, um, the use of that, uh, asset commences with you, you can write off 50% of the value of it, um, irregardless of what your um, net income is. And there's another provision called Section 179. So you can write off up to $250,000 of equipment that you put into service in any given year. So at the end of the year, a lot of times and at the end of the third quarter, when I get my clients work, I kind of, you know, talk with them and I'm like, is there anything that, you know, if they're in a tax situation, is there anything that you need? Is there any piece of machinery that you're looking to buy? Is there any, you know, something that you can buy? And that's what I'm looking for is section 179. But, there's a trick with 179, you can't go below zero with one, with section 179. So if you have a profit of $25,000 and you buy a piece of machinery for $35,000, you can only write off $25,000 because you can't go below zero. So um, now with bonus depreciation, you can go below zero. So that's why I'm sort of sad to see bonus depreciation go away, and um, but anyway, section 179 is still there, and it'll it'll be there forever.
1: So what, section 179, just to clarify, it's it's all about uh, these uh, equipment deductions and things like that.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it all has to do with depreciation. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, what else is there uh, that, like that? That's that's quirky about 179 or section 179. Is there anything else?
2: No, not about 179, but there's something really quirky about um, Social Security. So, get this. So, you want to hear something funny about this? Why not? Sure. Well, so the Social Security. We all know that I'm I'm from Generation X, right? So I'm 44 years old. I will never see Social Security ever in my life. It's never going to happen. So, um, the last, because and the reason for that is, right at this very moment, there are three people that are working for every one person on social security. Now, back when the baby boomers were working, there were six people for one person on social security, but all the baby boomers are starting to retire and there's less of us than there are of them. So Mm -hmm. right now there's three to one. So if you ever go to the social security administration, um, And you pull your personal earnings benefit statement, PEB statement, which is what I would ask, you know, tell everybody to do, but nobody really does it. But I pull mine every year. Oh,
1: I do too. I pull mine every year. But what it tells you,
2: what it tells you on page one is if something doesn't happen very soon with Social Security, it will be exhausted by the year 2030, right? And that's that sounds like, oh, that's so far away, but... It's right down there. It's it's right around the corner. So with uh Social Security, here's one of the quirks with it. Do you know Social Security maxes out Beltsus? So for instance, if you're working if you're working and you make I don't know what it is this year because it changes every year, but I think it's right around $120,000. If you make $175,000, you only pay Social Security on the $120,000.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: And well, then go And ahead. Then another thing with Social Security that is very odd is if you're receiving benefits – from social security, and and we all know that the people that are receiving benefits from social security, that's not enough to live on, right? So a lot of people who didn't plan for their retirement will go out and get like a part-time job or anything like that. But if you make over $15,500, guess what happens? What happens? The government starts taking your social security benefits away. They start reducing your benefits. Why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense, right? But they do. They they reduce your benefits.
1: Mm, that's interesting. What is this I hear about earned in uh, earned income not being taxable? A foreign earned income, I should say, not being taxable.
2: Yeah, so that's, that's something that's qu- very quirky with a tax code. Why is a tax code like this? So, if you're a United States citizen, resident alien, or a U.S. subject, and this is sort of hard to explain, but if you spend 180 days in the United States, you are considered a U.S. subject for, for tax purposes. You are taxed on worldwide income, on the income that you earn everywhere else. So, I'm a US citizen and let's say I go take a job in France and in France I make, you know, whatever it is I make, I make $150,000. Well, the foreign earned income exclusion, it it changes every year, but I believe the amount last year was $120,000. So the first $120,000 that I made isn't taxable. So um, provided that, you know, there's a lot of rules that go along with that, but for the most part, it's not taxable. So if you're thinking of taking a job in a foreign country or you know something similar to that, just know that that exists, and that's that's something that's really quirky about the tax code, and do you know why it is that way? I sure don't. Go ahead and tell everyone. Stop and think about this. You're taxed on worldwide income. The United States doesn't want to tax you twice, because in the country that you're in, you're probably being taxed once, right? Yeah. Why would that? Why would why would the U.S. want you to double up on that? Why would they want? Because really, you didn't earn the income within their jurisdiction, so why do they want to double up your taxes?
1: I'm guessing they want to get their fair share, of their cut.
2: Well, no, no, they don't. They don't. That's why they don't tax it.
1: Oh, okay. I guess I'm not understanding your point.
2: Okay, well, let me make it again.
1: Um, <laughs> so. so uh, it's Friday and I, and I'm ready for the weekend, so please do.
2: Yeah, so, so basically when you're living in a foreign country, you're not earning income in the jurisdiction of the United States, so you're probably paying taxes on it, so using my example, if I'm in France, I'm probably paying French income taxes, right? Okay, yeah, that well, makes sense. Well, the IRS, the IRS has put that provision in because they don't want you to have to pay tax on that money twice. Twice. Got so, it. So, yeah, so they put that provision in.
1: That makes complete sense now. Good. Okay, I think I just uh I am. I, I had a little bit of a, a brain lapse there for a minute, but now I completely understand. They don't want to tax you twice, so it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about what the record uh, record keeping requirements are? Like, I know, for instance, for meals, aren't there special um, record keeping requirements that folks should be aware of?
2: Yeah, for me also, anytime you ever take somebody out for lunch or you have a business lunch or something, on the receipt or in some notation somewhere, you have to notate who you had the lunch with, what you discussed, and the amount of the meal and the tip and all of that. So you have to um, either write that on the receipt or make some notation of that. Mm. Why is it so specific? Well, stop and think about it for a minute. I could just start issuing a bunch of receipts and say that, hey, that's a business meal. That would be like you and me going out to dinner uh, and we're always talking about business. And that would be like me deducting it. I mean, the spirit of the rule is that I take a client to lunch or I take a client to dinner and we do a lot of entertaining. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that would be the spirit of that's the spirit of the rules. So I've got to make some notation of that.
1: Makes sense. That makes sense completely. you uh, know, I don't think a lot of folks do that or are, are not. I know for a fact a lot of folks out there aren't probably not doing it the right way. And
2: No, I'll- they don't. They don't. And then some auditors will actually hit on that and they'll be very specific about it. And then other auditors will just blow right past it. So it, it really all depends.
1: It just depends. Luck of the draw. If you get somebody who's in a crabby mood, you might have to show a lot more detail.
2: Yeah, but remember (laughs) from last week's show, you can always appeal it, so don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I
1: think in the grand scheme of things, that's probably not something they're going to go after unless you have some outrageous amount of uh, meal expenses.
2: There are people that do. Yeah. Do something about something about uh, salespeople. Something about salespeople for a minute. That's a big expense for them. Mm-hmm. They're always taking people out to lunch. They're always spending money on entertainment meals. Stop and think about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know there are a lot. That's of, one
2: of their biggest expenses.
1: Yeah, it sure is, and it can get quite pricey. Yeah. What about uh, things to do with uh, auto expenses? Speaking of, uh, that's another one that uh, a lot of sales folks who might be out on the road a lot or consultants or people like that who, who have to travel a lot in their car, maybe real estate agents, uh, What is it? Uh, what are some of the things about auto ex- expenses that folks should be uh, concerned with or be aware of?
2: Well, everybody knows about a mileage log, or you should know that you should keep a mileage log. So I'm going to tell you a story about a mileage log. So I had an audit. It was one of the first audits I had back... 22 years ago, one of the probably the second or third audit I had, I had an auditor literally go line by line through a mileage log, and then I've had I've had auditors just kind of look at it and say, okay, well that looks you know fine enough. So again, it's a luck of the draw, but you have to keep some sort of log of the mileage you're driving for um, for business. So for instance. The, your trip from your home to your work isn't deductible, but a trip from from work to another um, temporary workplace would be deductible. So if you're visiting a client and you leave from work, that trip is deductible. If you are a real estate agent, they have a lot of mileage expenses and you're taking people out to look at houses. That would be a deductible expense. So it's just one of those things. It's, it's something that's very quirky about the tax code.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can. I can, Nowadays they make it so easy with all the different apps that you, that they have. There's a lot of apps uh, that you could just download on your iPhone or your smartphone, and it'll uh, handle logging all them the mileage for you. So if you're one of those folks listening who's out there who does a lot of traveling for work, you might want to consider uh, ditching the old paper. Log, you know, where you're actually having to stop and write. Yeah, things. because
2: yeah, because your iPhone it has GPS and it keeps track of it very well for you. It
1: makes things so much easier because I know I'd be one of those folks who would not want to lug around a uh, mileage log that I have to stop and write things in. But yeah, app-
2: no, <laughs> one thing about a mileage log is it has to be the the um the record has to be it has to be continuous so um, on those apps make sure that it's keeping continuous record they they call it um make just make sure it's continuous you know that it doesn't stop and start and things like that so make sure that it's um uh that that it is continuous
1: Okay, that makes sense. <coughs> um, can you talk a little bit about uh, alternative minimum tax? That's one of those things that a lot of folks don't really seem to understand or know uh, much about, and i I feel like that's something that you can uh, you can really shed some light on for folks.
2: Okay, well, alternative minimum tax basically came to came into play in 1969 and what was happening was you would have somebody that, you know, if you let's say that you're very wealthy and this was very popular the last election cycle and everybody so all the presidents or people that are running for president will release their tax returns, okay? So when they release their tax returns, Mitt Romney released his, and everybody got all upset because Mitt Romney was paying 20% in taxes and he was very wealthy. Well, his money had already been earned, it had already been taxed, and what he was doing was he was investing his money and he was paying taxes on investments. So um, if you pay tax on long-term capital gains, your tax is either 20% or 15%, depending on on what tax bracket you're in, so um, that's why everybody was upset. So. There's other little things in the tax code that lower your effective tax rate. So, back in 1969, uh, you know, basically they got together and said, hey, Congress said we're going to invent a new tax called the alternative minimum tax. And it's not alternative and it's not minimum, it's an alternate calculation of your taxes. So, if you have a lot of capital gains or something like that, you may fall into alternative minimum tax and it starts computing. Now, up till a few years ago, they had never indexed that for inflation. So more and more people were falling into alternative minimum tax. So they made a fix to it, but it's not as good of a fix as they should have made. So it's one of those things that... Um, AMT is something that when you're planning for taxes, you also have to plan for the alternative minimum tax. And that can be hard to do because alternative minimum tax deductions are different than regular deductions. We could do a whole show on that, but I think that would really bore people. So um mm-hmm. that's my explanation for alternative minimum tax
1: yes let's let's not do that to folks i'm I'm starting to fall asleep just thinking about it so um, before I fall asleep, I'm going to go ahead and uh, break for uh, for just a few minutes. We do have a lot of really fun questions that have come in that I can't wait to uh, ask Craig um, so just hang tight and when we return back from the break, we will tackle these questions. All right.
3: Forming a corporation or LLC can separate personal assets from your business assets. No matter what state your business operates in, forming a corporation or LLC in Nevada, Delaware, or Florida has benefits. For example, forming a corporation in Nevada offers privacy and no corporate income tax. Forming a corporation in Delaware can give you the legal protection of the state of Delaware, which is business friendly. On top of the legal reasons to form a corporation, there are tax benefits as well. Give us a call today at 1-844-CWSEAPA or 1-844-297-3272 or email us at info at CWSEAPA.com. Come and see what you've been missing.
0: Payroll can be a nightmare for a small business. When you have employees, you have to pay them periodically, pay the taxes associated with them, and file quarterly tax reports with the Internal Revenue Service and the state that your business operates in. Our payroll is seamless. It is done through a cloud-based system. All you do is put in what you are paying your employees and approve your payroll. We handle the rest. Our fees are lower than the national payroll companies too. Call us today at 1-844 CWS EAPA or 1844-297-3272. Or visit us on the web at CWSEAPA payrollservice.com.
3: At Alberna's Business Services Incorporated, we view ourselves as your internal bookkeeping department and are always improving ways to leverage proven cloud technologies to streamline and improve the efficiency of our outsourced services. With an in-house bookkeeper, you would run the cost of about $45,000 a year. But with our monthly services, it would be a fraction of that cost. Let us help you with the tedious, time-consuming side of your business so you can focus on growing your business. Call us today at 1-877-695-6658. Our website is alburnaservices.com or email Dalbernas at alburnaservices.com. Your success is
0: our business. Now let's get back to Craig and Belsis Smalley for more of Tax Avoidance is Legal on TalkZone.com.
1: Thanks so much for uh, joining us back on uh, Tax Avoidance is Legal. Today we've been discussing all about the tax code, why it's so complex, why it is the way it is. And we've had a lot of uh, quirky questions come in about uh, different deductions and things like that. And I have one, Craig, that uh, we've had. Similar questions like this before, but this one is pretty funny to me. Uh, Barbie from L.A. says that, uh, and she's kind of joking here, says her job is to just look good. But in all reality, she is a uh, actually a TV star. Uh, she does um, a lot of different TV shows, uh, hoping to make that big break. And she does buy a lot of expensive clothes. Like, you know, she has to look really good. She loves to get her uh, Louis Vuitton shoes and bags. And she wants to know, can she write these things off?
2: Hmm. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting question, and it's also interesting that her name is Barbie. She wants to look good. That's funny, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, can she write that off? That's very interesting. Up until the other day, I would have said, yeah, you probably have an argument, but guess what I read probably about a month ago, Belsis? What's that? I read a tax court case, right? So when something isn't bl- in black and white, if something isn't, um, you know, is as a definite yes or a definite no or has a gray area, I always look to a tax court case, right? Because that's how the tax court, that's how they'll rule on it, But you know, if it ever gets to there. So there was a guy um who filed the petition with the tax court and he worked for Ralph Lauren and he had to buy Ralph Lauren clothes and wear them to work every day. And it was a requirement of his job. Mm-hmm. So guess what? He gets to tax court and tax court says, no, you can't deduct that. The reason you can't deduct that is you can wear that anywhere else. So unless you're a performer and you are absolutely required to do that, like you have to have your hair a certain way for a role or. Um, you have to have your makeup a certain way for a role, then that's one thing. If you have to buy your own wardrobe for a role, which usually isn't the case, then yes, you could write that off. But going by that tax court case, I would say no to Barbie. There's no way.
1: Okay, so maybe uh, specific things that uh, she's required to buy or purchase for a role that she's playing, yes. But otherwise, if it's just because uh, she wants to look good in her Louis Vuitton gear, then no.
2: You no, know, because we all want to look good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, some of us have, uh, you know, finer tastes than others, but definitely. Um, so that that's a, a funny question coming come in here from Raymond in Tulsa. I want to see how you answer this, Craig. He wants to know if you are an aggressive accountant. <laughs> Is that a serious question? That's a question. I I can tell you Craig's quite aggressive in many ways, but
2: I don't know if... Uh, I, I, I don't know what that means. I'm not going to answer. <laughs> I don't know what aggressive, I mean, what does aggressive mean? What does, I mean? I mean, aggressive within the tax code, yes, of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm always looking for ways to um, to save a client money, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But within the tax code, I mean, I'm not going to take a position on something that has no basis or no merit
1: so what what would you say uh, how aggressive is too aggressive when it comes to tax code and you know things like that
2: I, I mean doing something that is you know specifically can 't be done or taking a position that so as a tax preparer, you have uh, some due diligence requirements. And one of those due diligence requirements are the uh, the requirement that it's more possible than not that this has actually occurred. So we get information from clients all the time. And there are times when the client will send me a piece of information and what I have to do is pick up the phone and call them and ask them further questions about it. I have to do due diligence on it. So um, if you're taking a, if you're just, you know, going outside the tax code or just taking positions that you think will get by because somebody has an argument without doing research, that's way too aggressive and that's going to get your clients in trouble.
1: Okay. And that brings up an interesting point, I think, uh, kind of veers into the next thing I was going to ask you. What do you think about um, ethics? I know that you take them very seriously, but is there any uh, comments you want to make about ethics and, you know... You just pointed out some things you definitely want to make sure that what you're doing is ethical and uh, you can be aggressive as long as it's, it's a legal uh, situation, obviously.
2: Yeah, ethics are, are something that's very important to me, but I would like to take this opportunity right now to think about – 15 years ago, there was this big blow-up with Enron, and what had happened was their accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, had set up all these tax shelters where they were basically – they're basically hiding money is basically what they were doing. They were moving money around and they were sheltering income and they were defrauding the internal revenue service. So because of that, every single year I have to take two hours of ethics. Now I'm going to tell you what I tell the kids and Belsis, you know what I tell the kids ethics are do or what you do when nobody's watching you. Mm -hmm. That's what ethics are. I take them very, very, very seriously. So, there have been times that, um, you know, just as an example, I've had a friend refer a, a friend of theirs, a really good friend refer a friend of theirs to me to do their tax return, and they've come back to me and asked me how much money do they make, and I don't break, I don't ever tell them, it's none of their business, I'm ethically not allowed to, so I don't. So, um, And I've even got... Got got to a point where I almost lost a friendship because of it, because I wouldn't tell you, you know, because the guy's like, you don't trust me. You don't you know, believe in me. And I was like, well, I can't tell you. And, and so I take them very seriously. And um, most licensed people do take them seriously.
1: And then that, I think that kind of goes into the next thing I wanted to tackle, which is, uh, it, it's directly correlated to your licensing requirement. You could definitely lose your license, you know, for divulging, uh, information. Oh, you can
2: like lose your here. license and spend a year in prison, yes. Yeah.
1: So why don't you talk a little bit about the licensing requirements for tax professionals? I think that's something that's, uh, good for folks to understand because sometimes folks are under the, uh, you know, under the wrong impression that everybody who does uh, taxes uh, is licensed, and that's not always the case.
2: Yeah, that's there are no licensing requirements. So, Val says tomorrow, with a little bit of tax knowledge that you have, you could break off from this company and form your own tax practice.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't don't want to do that. I'll leave that. anybody
2: to you. could do that. anybody could do it. anybody can open up their own tax shop. anybody can 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 do that because there are no licensing requirements. Believe it or not.
1: And that's a very scary thing. But um, in your particular case, you're an enrolled agent, and uh, I know that there's requirements, obviously, for your license. You want to talk a little bit about that? What you have to do to maintain that license
2: uh, every year? Well, yeah, so. To become an enrolled agent, I had to take a two day, four part examination, um, that was all about taxes and ethics and corporate, you know, that it was a whole big test. There was a hundred question tests for each part. It was, it was a very, very, very hard exam. And I took the exam and after that, I had to go through a background check, right? So I had mm-hmm. to have a background check done on me. And then after that, every single year, I have to do 30 hours of continuing education because I'm a member of the National Association of Enrolled Agents. Now, if you're not a member of that organization, you only have to do 15, um, you have to do 15 uh, CPE per year, but because I'm a member of that organization, I, I have to do 30, so I have to do double what um, the IRS requires you to do, and and two hours of those have to be ethics.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, I know that, that for a fact, but um, what would you say... To someone who's looking um, for an accountant, what would you um, point them towards in terms of choosing an accountant? What are some of the things they should really look look for?
2: Well, y- you kind of want to find somebody that you know. You don't want to. You want to sort of. You don't want to go to the lowest bidder. So. And, and this is kind of, you know, you can take this whatever way you want to take it, but when I meet with a client, if the first question they ask me is how much do I charge, I typically kind of wrap that meeting up as quickly as I possibly can because that's not, it's not something that should really go to the lowest bidder. It should go to, you know, the person that's that's the most qualified and things like that. And I understand that people have money issues and, you know, and things like that. And then obviously they want to know what things cost. But, you know, if you're looking for the lowest bidder, then that's something else. You know, you're probably going to get somebody that's unlicensed, that doesn't, have some knowledge or you know or whatever that's usually the lowest bidder so um but what you're looking for is somebody that you can talk with somebody that's knowledgeable of the tax code somebody that can save you money never pay an accountant more than what they're saving you in tax money so if you're paying your accountant more than what they're saving you then you're not you know you're not saving anything, so anyway, be wary of that and stop and think about that and But um you want to look for somebody that you know has the same values as you obviously and um and can save you the most money
1: absolutely and if you have a hard time just give us a call and we will be happy to to take you at <laughs> Um but as i mentioned before you know there there really are a lot of different um, uh, folks out there who are practicing um, accounting and tax preparation and unfortunately not everyone is licensed like craig who's an enrolled agent and he has to take a lot of continuing professional education, and he actually does a heck of a lot more than that. He, he does a lot of research. And, Craig, why do you do so much research? I, I see you every day. You get up at 3 in the morning, you know, 4 in the morning at the latest, and you are doing a bunch of research. Is it because of all the different changes to the tax Yeah, also? it
2: changes. It changes so much so you don't know what's going to walk in the door tomorrow right so it could be something that I've never dealt with before it can be something that I have a client in that particular situation so I spend a lot of time reading um, you know because it changes every day I spend a lot of time reading tax court cases spend a lot of time reading um, you know different things you know different ways of getting around things is what I'm looking for to be honest with you so that's why I do as much research as I can because the Internal Revenue Code is so vast and I'm here to tell you, I don't know everything about it. There are parts of it that I specialize in and parts that I don't. And when I encounter a client on something that I don't specialize in, I always let them know I don't specialize in this. You can still hire me and I'll be up to speed on it. I'll get myself up to speed on it, but um, there are certain parts of the tax code that I don't pay attention to because I don't want to be in that space or I don't, but you know, I do do a lot of research. That's why.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's about time for us to take another break. And on the uh, on the way back from that break, Craig, I really want you to ta- uh, talk a little bit about why it takes so long for people to get refunds lately. I've been getting so many complaints and so many folks asking me that question. Uh, I think it's uh, something that's on a lot of people's minds. So hang in there, folks. And uh, when we return, Craig's going to answer why it takes so long for us to get our refunds.
3: Craig Smalley is the author of 12 books regarding taxation. Two of his books have been revised this year. It starts with an idea revised edition takes you through the startup of a company. It talks about taxes, entity structuring, the IRS, and so much more. The Complete Guide to Estate, Gifts, and Trust Taxation Revised Edition is about how to navigate the complex estate tax. Both books have just been released by CWSEAPA Publishing, LLC, and are on sale now at Amazon.com.
0: If you are a business that has outgrown your accountant but are not big enough for one of the big four accounting firms, CWS EAPA Consulting may be perfect for you. We specialize in tax consulting for small to medium-sized businesses. We can advise you on whether it is time to start a holding company or management company to mitigate your tax liability. We can advise you on whether it is a good time to expand your business, hire employees, buy equipment, or lease equipment. There are different tax reasons to do different things let our over 22 years of experience work for you call us today at 1-844-CWSEAPA or 1-844-297-3272 you can email us at info at CWSEAPA.com or visit us on the web at CWSEAPA.com we're doing something amazing and we want you to be a part of it
3: With so many choices when looking for quality investment advice, you owe it to yourself to seek a professional who has your best interests at heart. At J.B. Meridian Advisors, we don't sell products that generate commissions or have hidden fees. Client assets are never locked up in illiquid investments that could take months or years to access, or worse, charge a penalty to sell in an emergency. Our simple structure aligns the interests of our clients with our interests by charging a flat fee based on the assets we manage. As your portfolio value increases, our firm grows. Call JB Meridian Advisors now at 877 398 0051 or visit us online at jbmeridian.com.
0: Now, let's get back to Craig and Dulce Smalley for more of Tax Avoidance is Legal on TalkZone.com.
1: Thanks so much. Welcome back to Tax Avoidance is Legal. Today, we've been discussing why the uh, tax code is the way it is. And when when we left for break, I uh, wanted to, Craig to tackle the question, why it takes so long... Um, for us to get our tax refunds lately? Um, a lot of uh, clients and folks have been asking that question.
2: It's a big, bad, nasty world out there. So what's happened is in the last 10 years or so, there's been identity theft. And what people have done is stolen people's identity and filed uh, fraudulent tax returns with inflated refunds. So, um, you know, if you're, if you have a, a a refund that's over a certain amount in proportion to your income, the IRS is probably going to hold it until the information returns come in and they can do a little bit of matching that up. So that's why it takes so long. So there used to be a time where you could go to the IRS.gov and click on where's my refund and it would tell you within a, within a, uh, with the, within a certainty of about a day of when exactly the date is that you would receive your income or your income tax return. Now they just give you an estimate, but that's why what is because of identity theft.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, IRS wants to make sure that everything is, uh, you exactly. know, legit. Yeah.
2: Especially if you file your tax return early. So if you file it like right around the time you can start filing it and it's a large refund, expect it to be held for a little bit.
1: I know that we get at least one person each year that has had their identity stolen. How do they folks go around uh go about fixing that if it happens to them?
2: it's a pain. it really is. I mean, I think last week I told the story of the guy that I finally got his identity theft uh fixed uh Um, and it took two years to do but basically what you do is you've there's a form that you file with the Internal Revenue Service saying your identity has been stolen then you file your tax return you have to file by paper and it's happened so much now that the IRS gets it figured out within about a year or so but Um, In that year's time, you're waiting on your refund and things like that. So it's uh, one of those things. And it happens about, what, once a year for us, right, sweetie?
1: Yeah, at least once a year. We seem to have somebody uh, who's had that same issue. That's why I wanted to to kind of ask. Um, We've got some some questions coming in here from Thomas in Huntington Beach. He wants to know, um, how do tax proposals become law?
2: How do tax proposals come in law? Well, basically they go to the Ways and Means Committee. So the Ways and the Means Committee, the House of Representatives, they come up and they decide what's gonna be the tax law that goes to the House. And then it goes to the Senate, they vote on it, the president signs it, then the Internal Revenue Service gets it and they play with it. They start adding revenue procedures to it. They start adding code sections to it or amendments to it. Then there's tax court cases that interpret it. And so that's how you get the tax code that we have today.
1: Mm, Okay. All right. Well, we have a question here from Philip in Omaha. He wants to know, does he have to keep his receipts?
2: No, no, you don't. As a matter of fact, use everything, everybody, and well, unless you spend cash or write a check or something like that, but most people use their debit card or their credit card. Under federal law, the uh, the banks have to keep those receipts for a period of 10 years. So if you're ever examined nine times out of 10, the uh the examiner will just accept the credit card statement or the bank statement or something like that but no you don't have to you don't have to save little tiny pieces of paper anymore that's that's over with been over with for years
1: yeah thank goodness because that was always a pain we always inevitably oh, I gotta had I
2: you though, when i first went into practice we used to get these these People that would come in with boxes full of receipts, we used to call them basket jobs because all you want to do is throw them in the waste basket, and it would take so much time to go through this stuff, but we don't have to do that stuff anymore.
1: I know. Absolutely. Thank goodness for that. Um, let's hear here. Uh, Paul in New York City, he says that uh, when the IRS is audited by the General Accounting Office, don't. They don't even follow their own rules about substantiation. Why is that? That's kind of funny.
2: Yeah, they don't. They really don't. So every year, well, every few years, the IRS is audited by the general um, accounting board and they come in and they they audit the IRS and they don't follow their own rules on substantiation, which is funny. It's kind of ironic, but I don't know why that is the way it is, but they let them skirt by so they keep doing it that way.
1: Yeah, that sounds pretty typical. The government always finds a way to skirt around things. so Exactly.
2: Uh,
1: let's see here. Oh, this is a good question. Uh, it's kind of a, an annoyance for us who have to deal with the IRS. Nick in New Orleans, New Orleans uh, says, why can't you communicate electronically with the IRS?
2: Oh, (laughs) because they're antiquated and it's it makes it so hard. I think that the IRS is literally the people that are keeping the United States Postal Service in business today, because every communication you get from the IRS is it's a letter. You'll never get an email from the IRS. So if you get an email from the IRS saying to click on this link, the IRS will never send you an email. I'm a professional. The IRS does not have a mechanism for me to send them an electronic email, nor can they electronic email me. I have to send letters or faxes. So it's funny. I'm probably – accountants are probably the last breed of of, of professionals – that have to have a ta- have to have a fax machine or some sort of faxing device. And it's horrible. So yeah, that's why. I mean, I don't know why it is the way it is, but that is you know the way that it is, which is kind of funny because in the state of Florida, I do I do a lot of work with the Florida Department of Revenue, and you can email the Florida Department of Revenue. You do it through a safe um, and secure um, email, and you can you can do it. But with the IRS, you can't.
1: Yeah, it's very frustrating, and I know it's something. It good. is. It uh, is, because
2: it takes forever. you got to wait for the mail, and then this comes, and that comes, and it's it's, an, it's, a, it's a huge annoyance. It really is.
1: It is. Well, we're almost out of time, so I've got to ask the final question, and everybody else, if you've uh, sent in your question and it hasn't been answered yet, um, we will definitely email you back with a response, but Gregory in Orlando wants to know, why do you like college basketball over pro basketball, Craig? <sighs>
2: Okay, well, this is kind of a long answer. I don't know if we have time for it, but I'll try to yeah, tackle it.
1: You're going to have to make it quick.
2: I was born in Indianapolis, so I'm a Hoosier and um, lived there till I was two years old, but that's beside the point. I grew up with Hoosier parents that... And I grew up watching basketball. College basketball has not adopted the NBA rules. The NBA rules are, I don't understand them because they're not basketball rules. They're, they're made that way for entertainment purposes. And so when I'm watching an NBA game, I'm very confused. And it's unlike the college game, which is, you know, that's more, it's more closely related to, um, basketball and the rules of travel. I mean, you know, it, just one rule in particular, Traveling in the NBA, it doesn't. I mean, somebody can literally just walk all the way down the court, and they, it's very hard to get called for traveling in the NBA. In college, just tell that to LeBron James. He knows exactly that. that guy travels every single time he makes a layup. He's traveling, but um, it, it's just one of those things. I just, I just like the rules better. I think the rules are more. You know, like the game. So, but in, I know my son Gregory, he loves the NBA over, over colleagues. But anyway, I think I'm done, so I'm, I'll get off my soapbox.
1: All right. Well, folks, this is going to conclude today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in to Tax Avoidance is Legal. Tune in next week. And as I mentioned, the show is sponsored by CWSC APA and Tax Crisis Center. Tax Crisis Center is the uh, nation's premier uh, tax resolution service. You can reach Tax Crisis Center at one eight four four. Uh, two nine seven. Oh, actually, it's one eight five five, right?
2: Yes, <laughs> one eight five five IRS two nine one one.
1: There we go. Everybody have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you next week.